Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hello, Pod Save the World fans. How much better is it to hear my voice on Friday mornings than that Wednesday nonsense? Thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is a guy named Rob Malley. He's an expert on ISIS, and he's an expert on the Middle East. And we talked about two subjects. We talked about what the hell is happening in Lebanon. Uh, You've probably seen the prime minister resigned on live TV in Saudi Arabia. Talked about what happened, what it means and explained how this whole thing really revolves around Iran in a lot of ways. Interestingly, he was in Beirut just last week, was there while all this went down and talked to people in government. So he has a fascinating firsthand approach. Second, we talked about ISIS, and we talked about sort of a snapshot of where they are in terms of their strength. But then it was a much more interesting conversation, in my opinion, about civilian casualties. The New York Times has a huge piece out this week in the magazine about massive numbers of civilian casualties as a result of coalition strikes in Iraq. It is heartbreaking to read. And Rob was really processing the story in real time. He'd read it that morning. And, you know, we had a thoughtful conversation about our approach to terrorism, the way we need to tweak it to make sure we're not hurting innocent people or creating more terrorists than we are taking off the battlefield. It is the kind of candor that is hard to find in government and sometimes even for those who have left. And I greatly appreciated his perspective. So thanks for tuning in. And here's the interview. My guest today on Pod Save the World is Rob Malley. He was a senior advisor to the president for a counter ISIS campaign in the White House, as well as the White House coordinator for the Middle East, North Africa, and the Gulf region. He currently works as the vice president for policy at the Crisis Group, where he shapes and oversees their policy across all the organization's work. And I'm thrilled to have him on today because I finally get to talk to someone who can help me understand what the hell is happening in Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. Rob, thank you again for doing the show. My pleasure. So first question for you is what in the world is going on in Lebanon? The backstory is the the prime minister of Lebanon, Saad Hariri, suddenly announces resignation out of nowhere. Even more bizarrely, he did it on live TV from Saudi Arabia. Hariri cited Iranian influence in Lebanon, making him fearful that he would be assassinated. Others in the region see a different motive behind what happened uh, and said he has basically been taken hostage from the Saudis. That includes Lebanese officials who are demanding his return. So I guess the question is, what do we actually know about what happened and why this all went down? So very coincidentally, I happened to be heading towards Lebanon on the Sunday after the Saturday that this resignation took place. So I landed in Lebanon and I had an appointment with the prime minister for the next day, which they had confirmed for me as recently as the Saturday that he resigned. So I I think that's a pretty good clue that uh, nobody in his office expected him to resign. In fact, they, they told me the meeting would still take place even after he had resigned. So I think there was enough confusion there to show that this was not something that was pre-planned. As it turns out, and this is something I have to say I found hard to believe, others were telling me, and I found it so beyond imagination that I uh, resisted it because it sounded like one of those Middle East conspiracy theories of which we hear so many. But the uh, Lebanese prime minister, who is very close to Saudi Arabia, in fact, he's a dual citizen, Lebanese and Saudi, 
comes from a family with very close ties to the Saudi royal family. He was called to come to Saudi Arabia without knowing why. He actually told his colleagues that he thought that it was uh, to talk about more assistance to, to, to Lebanon. He had just been to Saudi Arabia, had a good meeting, so he had no reason to expect uh, anything uh, unusual. And he lands there and he's told that he's going to meet with the crown prince, who's the son of the king, and it turns out he doesn't. He meets with somebody else, and two hours later he comes out and he reads his own resignation on Saudi TV. You know, if this is a crime, then the the criminal left the proof on the table since uh, by saying it in Saudi Arabia, after having been summoned to Riyadh, it was clear that the prime minister, Saad Hariri, was reading what was a made-in-Saudi Arabia resignation letter. Mm -hmm. So this was a Saudi decision. They didn't want him to be prime minister anymore. And they basically told him, uh, you got to resign. And they obviously have means of pressuring him and his family. Some people tried to deny that he had said this against his will since he said that he was speaking freely. Uh, some people deny that he was held uh, in sort of home detention or under house arrest. But it turns out that when I was in Lebanon, I spoke to people close to him and they all said the same thing, that he had not known that he was going there to resign that he didn't resign of his own volition, and that when they tried to speak to him over the phone, he did not answer, or when he did answer, it was yes and no answers, clearly indicating that he didn't feel like he could speak freely. So I don't think there's any mystery anymore, even though there might have been on the first days when this happened, about what actually occurred. There may be more of a question about why this happened this way, because it does seem Mm -hmm. pretty odd, but the reality of what transpired, I think, now is, is pretty clear to all. That's fascinating. It's amazing that you were on the ground for all that. Pure coincidence. Uh, for that period right. of time. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, God. I mean, enough crises in the Middle East that whenever you land, you probably have a happy coincidence if what you're looking for is a crisis. <laughs> but in this case, it, uh, it, was, it was quite serendipitous. Well put. I-, I think a lot of people listening are probably wondering, what the hell did the Saudis have to do with Lebanon? And I think it might be helpful to talk a bit about uh, Lebanon's government, the way it's constructed, because it is complicated to say the least. There are Sunnis, there are Christians, there are Shia, uh, there is Hezbollah, which is a Shia Islamist militant or terrorist group slash political party that controls parts of the government. Can you give us sort of the one-on-one on, on Lebanon's political system in a bit of a sense of what Hezbollah is and how the Saudis use their influence in Lebanon? So, I mean, very quickly, Lebanon is, is sort of a microcosm of everything that's right and everything that's wrong with the region. And in some ways, it's the arena in which every regional actor is playing out its interests and, and its, its competition with others. Lebanon went through a very bloody civil war in the 70s and a civil war that was devastating to the country and which only was resolved once all of Lebanon's key patrons, if that's what you will, or all the regional players uh, agreed on an outcome that essentially divided power along the, or distributed power along to the sectarian groups that you mentioned. So the president of Lebanon is always a Christian Maronite. The prime minister, which is the most important position, is a Sunni, and the speaker of parliament is a Shia. That was part of what was agreed in order to, to stabilize the situation, That was that there would be a sectarian allocation of power. That's stabilized the country, but at a cost. In other words, that obviously exacerbated uh, the sectarian divisions and the, in a way, the, the, the paralysis of the system because you couldn't move without the consensus of all three players and therefore of all, of all the 
sectarian groups that they purported to, to represent. The other piece of it, as I said, is that it really was a regional consensus. And by regional, one means in particular Syria had to agree, but also Saudi Arabia and Iran. And each of those countries kept a very strong uh, influence in where Lebanon would go and how its political system would be arranged. So if you don't have agreement among those countries, you don't you get a political deadlock. And that's what's happened many times in the recent history of Lebanon. And they finally resolved it a, a few a year and a half ago or so with a choice of a prime minister who was acceptable to Saudi Arabia, a president who was acceptable to Iran. And uh, that was the sort of rough equilibrium. The other element of this puzzle is the presence of a very powerful militia, Hezbollah, which is a Shia militia organization, which benefits from very strong Iranian support. And that is also a, you know, it's both a stabilizing factor because that's what uh, ensures that you're not going to get another civil war. The, The Hezbollah feels that as long as its interests are guarded, it's not going to resume the fight. But of course, that comes at a, at a cost in terms of how other communities feel when they feel that one of their communities is is armed and armed uh, quite significantly. But it's been an uneasy balance, but at least a balance that's preserved peace and stability in Lebanon itself, of course, have been a series of wars uh, with Israel. What has happened now, obviously, with what Saudi Arabia has done is basically indicate they don't like this equilibrium anymore. They don't like this balance. And the reason is pretty straightforward, I think which is that the new leadership in Saudi Arabia has decided that it has been too passive vis-a-vis Iran, that it has let Iran get away with too much in the region, and that one place in which it want, where it wants to fight back is in Lebanon. And basically what the message that the prime minister was conveying, but really on behalf of the Saudis is, we don't accept the situation anymore where we have this coexistence between Shia, Sunni, and Christians, and where the Sunni prime minister, who is a Saudi ally, is sitting in a coalition government in which Hezbollah, a Shia militia that is allied to Iran, also sits. Because that kind of undermined the Saudi narrative that that Iran is the mortal enemy that is at the source of all evil in the region. How could it be at the source of all evil in the region if Saudi Arabia's one of its closest allies, Saad Hariri, the prime minister of Lebanon, is comfortable sitting side by side with Hezbollah, which is Iran's closest ally in the region, without any problem. So that image uh, needed to be punctured. And I think what Saudi Arabia chose to do was to say, we can't accept the situation anymore. We're not going to give cover to a government that includes our mortal enemy, or at least the allies of our mortal enemy. And therefore, it's either going to be our prime minister, or Hezbollah, but we can't have both. Mm-hmm. So Saad Hariri's father, Rafiq, was seen as, a, I think, a more natural and effective leader. He was assassinated in 2005. There's been uh, a special tribunal going on for a long time trying to figure out who did it. But isn't it generally thought that Hezbollah and possibly Assad was behind that assassination, or am I misremembering? I think that's the general conclusion today that... Uh, Initially, people thought that Syria was really the, the, the culprit. I think over time, the tribunal was moving and actually uh, found that it was more uh, Hezbollah that had been behind it. Yes. So again, I mean, when I say that the, the, the situation in Lebanon is both the best and the worst of the Middle East, 
uh, yes, it wasn't the best for Rafi Kariri, who was fell victim of uh, these internal tensions and regional tensions. And if one is to believe the findings of the special tribunal, uh, Hezbollah decided that it was better off getting rid of Hariri than having to live with somebody who was a powerful leader and who represented interests that Hezbollah and its allies probably concluded had become uh, too uncomfortable to live with. Almost everyone you, you read has a, a similar conclusion that, unfortunately for Lebanon, they've become a proxy war between the Saudis, a bunch of Gulf Arab states, and Iran. President Trump has talked repeatedly about creating this Sunni Arab coalition to fight ISIS. But again, it seems like the Saudis who anchor that coalition are more interested in doing what they can to isolate Iran. So I don't want to blame the Trump administration for what happened in Lebanon, and, and I'm not. Uh, but it does feel like they have a willingness to put their thumb on the scale that can be problematic. Trump leapt into this regional dispute between Qatar by tweeting. There were a lot of questions being asked about Jared Kushner's secret trip to Saudi Arabia shortly before uh, Hariri resigned. What do you make of their approach? And do you think it's possible that they are exacerbating some of the sectarian challenges that already exist? I think every administration kind of overlearns the lessons of the last one and overlearns its criticism of the last one. I think in this case, the Trump administration believes that the Obama administration was much too cool towards its uh, allies, Saudi Arabia being one of them and Israel being another and Egypt being a third, and it was going to compensate. And that the secret to restoring U.S. credibility, U.S. deterrence uh, in the region, the, the, the key to pushing back against Iran in particular, but also extremist groups, was to embrace Saudi Arabia, to embrace the king and his son, who was uh, clearly in the eyes of everyone going to be the king's and will be the king's successor, and to embrace him in a way that says, we're with you, we have your back, and now let's work hand in hand, and we'll actually uh, help you in pursuit of your regional objectives, because I think in the eyes of the Trump administration, they more or less coincide with, uh, with America's interest, which is to push back against Iran and against uh, extremist groups. The problem, of course, is that uh, if you do that and you're emboldening and enabling a leader of a country that, you know, he may turn out over the years to be uh, a wise and uh, sagacious uh, person, but right now he does seem to be right, rather brash and impulsive, and that's, as I say, the son of the, uh, of the king of Saudi Arabia. And on more than one occasion, it appears that President Trump has given... Uh, the crown prince, the impression that whatever he did would be accepted. And so what he did in Lebanon only a few days after he had met with Jared Kushner, in regional eyes, it read as if there had been a blank check given to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, to do what he felt he needed to do, again, to push back against Iran, which is a, an agenda item that the Trump administration uh, enthusiastically espouses. And if it means changing the prime minister of Lebanon, why not? Now, it's not clear that's actually a message that either the president or Jared Kushner gave. It's certainly the impression that was created, and it's hard to imagine that the crown prince would have done any of this if he didn't feel that he would have had full U.S. support. As it turns out, as often turns out, the first tweet that President Trump put out after this happened was full confidence in the king and in the crown prince. They know exactly what they're doing. It took a few days, maybe uh, wiser minds to prevail. And now the, the line coming out of the White House and the State Department is roughly the same, which is, 
let's not sacrifice Lebanon's stability. Let's not do something that is really undermining what we've built in Lebanon, which is a relatively stable entity with some kind of balance among communities, and jeopardize that with potentially very devastating consequences for Lebanon and the rest of the region. So there's been a somewhat of a, of a, of a pullback. But it, there's a pattern here, and the pattern is that you have a young crown prince who on file after file fears that he feels that he can go quite far and feels that he's been uh, sort of enabled by, by the United States, by President Trump and his team, and then gets himself into situations that frankly are more problematic for him than for those he's trying to undermine. And in this, this case, really, the Lebanonese case is a, is a case in point. I've been to Lebanon a dozen times in my life. Every time I go, it's clear that the communities have different views, the leaders of the different communities. I think one would be wrong to say that Sunni, Shia, and Christians are loggerheads. Their leaders often are. They almost never agree on anything. This time, everyone agreed, Shia, Sunni, Christian, Druze, that Saudi Arabia had treated Lebanon as a banana republic by summoning a prime minister who was the legitimately chosen prime minister of Lebanon, by forcing him to read a statement that, if you look at it, it looks like he's reading his own uh, death sentence, and then by forbidding him from leaving the country or from communicating with his closest allies in Lebanon. So that was really a, 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 an own goal on the part of Saudi Arabia because it weakened the person who was closest to them, and it didn't, tr- it didn't really unite all Lebanese, but at least united them on one issue, which is this is not the way to treat our prime minister. And so whether they truly believed it or not, they all came out in favor of the prime minister saying, release our prime minister from Saudi Arabia. And it's that kind of impulsive behavior that the United States needs to push back against. And if they've built all this credit with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and now there's a, a closeness between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, again, that might not have existed under the Obama administration, then the least you could do is use it to make sure that you you know, prod and press and push the crown prince to do the right thing, not to get into some of these adventures that end up uh, boomeranging. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. 
When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Crooked World. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. You talked about this sort of fragile calm that's existed in Lebanon for a while. Just underneath that is is Hezbollah, a very, very well-armed militia group. And I think their presence make people view Lebanon as a potential tinderbox and and presumably that this situation is a five alarm fire that we need to deal with. And I think if I were in the White House, if you were there now, I think Barack Obama would have said Hillary Clinton, go to Riyadh or Beirut and don't come back until this is solved or Secretary Kerry, the same order. Do you see any efforts being made to mediate this conflict with Rex Tillerson or, you know, anyone else in the administration to, to try to cool it off? Like, is that happening? And if there's not any meaningful activity, what do you think they should be doing to try to calm things down? So, I mean, I think the mistake was made in the in the run-up in the immediate aftermath of, of, uh, of this uh, forced resignation. My understanding is that right now the administration has sent a message to the Saudis saying, you may have gone too far this time because you are jeopardizing the stability of a country that not only are we do we have good relations with, but whose stability is critical to the stability of the region because it sits where it sits, bordering Syria, bordering Israel. Uh, As you say, with hundreds and thousands of Hezbollah rockets, if things go wrong in Lebanon, things could go very wrong in the rest of the region. So my sense is that they have now sent that message. And, you know, you're hearing that uh, the prime minister is going to be allowed to travel, maybe travel to Paris. Let's see whether he ultimately makes it to Beirut. In some ways, the harm is done, but I, I, I do think uh, I want to. So I don't think that Trump administration as a whole never, never engages in diplomacy. I think they underplay it. But in this case, my sense is, after having seen how this played out in Lebanon, cooler heads prevailed, and those cooler heads were arguing the same thing from day one. I mean, I heard this from U.S. officials from day one, who may not have been speaking to the president, but who nonetheless know the region very well and saying. This is madness. It has to stop. And I do think that you're now seeing not just from the U.S., but from other very close allies of Saudi Arabia, like the French, saying this is a case where you really did go too far Let's and where you're handing a victory to all of those who you tried to hurt. I mean, it really is a case of uh, helping those that you thought that you were going to undermine. It helps Hezbollah because Hezbollah came out saying we stand, even though we disagree with him politically, but we stand with our prime minister and his honor needs to be respected. That doesn't make uh, others. That doesn't make Saudi Arabia look particularly good. It helps Iran because Iran could just sit back and sort of enjoy the show and say, 
if Saudi Arabia is going to make mistake after mistake in Yemen and Qatar, now in Lebanon, and we're going to get the dividends, fine. We, could, we don't need to do that much. Uh, we'll just sit back and watch Saudi Arabia continue to weaken itself. And so I think that's where, you know, in this episode, it does seem like at this point, the administration is, is giving some counsel to Saudi Arabia. I think there's a broader theme here, which is uh, we could debate how much and how one needs to push back against Iran. I think what is really not is not really an issue for debate is that the way Saudi Arabia and the U.S. has gone about it in, in recent times, in recent months, um, has been counterproductive because it has strengthened uh, and bolstered Iran's influence at a time when the claim is that we're trying to weaken it. Yeah. One last question for you on Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Saudis have been locked in this struggle with Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen for a very long time. There's been a blockade that has prevented food, sustenance, anything from getting into Yemen. Uh, the United States has been backing the Saudis in this effort for a long time, including during the Obama administration. The human cost is unimaginably horrific. There is a, a famine predicted. There are civilian casualties uh, in the tens of hundreds of thousands. Can you talk about what's happening there? And, and, and how is it acceptable for the United States to back an effort like this that seems to harm uh, civilians so indiscriminately? I mean, so first, I think there needs to be some degree of uh, introspection because, of course, the war started under uh, the Obama administration's watch. Agreed. I want to say that I'm, I'm asking the question as someone who's wondering how Barack Obama supported what's happening. It's a longer discussion. I, I, you know, I think what happened is, is several things. Number one, you know, Saudi Arabia is a very close U.S. ally. I think that's a given. Uh, whatever discomfort, and there was discomfort even at the beginning of the war when one couldn't necessarily have known how bad it would it would get, there was discomfort at the notion that we were going to have a rupture with Saudi Arabia. And don't forget, the war began at the, time, at the height of the negotiations between the U.S. and Iran over the nuclear deal, over which the Saudis already were apoplectic. And I think the notion among most of, uh, of the presidents uh, at the cabinet level, his advisors, was um, we just can't afford not to be on Saudi Arabia's side when they're confronting this threat on their southern border of a movement, the Houthis, who are Shia, who seem to be overrunning the whole country with some degree of Iranian support. It was debatable at the time, but some degree of Iranian support. And can we leave the the, the Saudis uh, without helping them? When we know they're going to go to war anyway, they told us they're going to start the war. Should we support them or abandon them? And then maybe we could cause a rupture in a relationship that goes back decades. The end result, I think, and because I, I think it's fair to say the president was quite uh, quite torn about this, but the end result was something to please everyone, which maybe pleases no one in the end, which is, yes, we're going to stand with Saudi Arabia in terms of defending its own sovereignty, its territorial integrity, and against any instability that would come from Yemen. On the other hand, we're not going to participate in Saudi Arabia's war against the Houthis. Now, that's a very fine line. Obviously, you know, assist, military assistance is fungible. So you say, we're just going to help you for your self-defense. They, of course, could use that, uh, whatever assistance uh, we give them in offensive operations. So we we tried to cabin off the assistance that was provided to Saudi Arabia so that none of it could go towards waging war against the Houthis. But let's be, I think we have to be candid that in the end, we not only failed to do that, we failed to modulate uh, Saudi's war efforts. I mean, part of the goal was to t- convince them not to target civilian uh, uh, facilities, 
tried to convince them to engage in diplomacy. That's what Secretary Kerry tried to do. And so the hope was by giving them just enough to show that we are still on their side, but not enough to show that we were endorsing everything they did and to keep the pressure on them to move towards a di- diplomatic solution. That was the gambit. It failed. And I think we have to be quite uh, honest about it. And it's one of those things that, that, that haunts me when you see where we are today and you said it. This is the worst hunger situation we have today in the world. It's the worst epidemic of cholera in modern uh, in the modern era. I mean, this is uh, this is a war, and you know, Syria is worse. But we're not supporting the Assad regime. We are working with uh, with the Saudi uh, with the Saudi Kingdom. So it does make it in some ways harder even to stomach from a U.S. perspective. I think you know by by 2016, as we had tried repeatedly and and really repeatedly to convince the Saudis of two things, change their targeting practices because we knew that they were not just uh, mistakenly uh, targeting civilian facilities. Sometimes we told them, this is a civilian facility, don't target it, and they went ahead and did it anyway. So that was one effort we tried, and the other effort was the diplomatic track, and we didn't find enough flexibility on the Saudi side. They weren't prepared always to, to, they weren't prepared to stick to the ceasefire agreements that Secretary Kerry was brokering. So by mid-2016, we decided to pull back some of our assistance to Saudi Arabia. Again, I'll be candid, too little, too late. By then, the war was, was fully engaged. And what we were, were removing from the, 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 the toolkit of things that we were giving to the Saudis wasn't really going to make a difference. So, But we did at least try to do that. I think what we're seeing with the Trump administration, again, it's a different theory of the case. The theory, the Trump administration theory of the case is, why should, there should be no daylight between us and the Saudis. We should espouse them. We should embrace them. And then maybe we'll have some influence. What we're seeing is we're seeing the embrace. That's clear. I mean, from the trip that President Trump took to Saudi Arabia to the constant tweets and the support that he is showering on, the, on Riyadh, what we're not seeing is that credit, that leverage that's been acquired, used to stop the war in, in, in Yemen, to try to at least get a, a pause in the war, to try to convince them to move to the negotiating table. That's what's missing. So this is not a defense of the Obama administration, I think, Tommy, as you and I said. I think there's a lot we need to go back and think about in terms of how do you deal with an ally like Saudi Arabia when it's engaging in a policy that is so contrary to everything we believe in and that is causing a disaster, humanitarian, but also political. I mean, again, in terms of counterproductive moves, everything the Saudis have done has allowed the, the, the Houthis to entrench their power in, in the north, has allowed them to, has made them get closer to Iran. They've acquired more missiles. They've fired them at, at Saudi Arabia. So this is not helping Saudi security. It's not helping push back against Iran. But the Trump administration's theory of the case is, just seems to me to be missing a, a big piece, which is, okay, you're getting closer to, to Saudi Arabia. You're showing, showering them with love. Where, you, where are you using that? How are you using that to shape their policy in a way that's going to stop this war? Yeah. I mean, look, I don't mean to raise this is that this is easy. Uh, there was a horrific problem of al-Qaeda, AQAP in Yemen. Uh, government instability exacerbated that problem. The Saudis have been an ally for a very long time. You and I both know very well how much they support us in that fight against AQAP. Uh, we also know that the Iranians were sending shipments of arms uh, to the Houthi rebels. So it's, uh, as usual, a complicated mess. But man, yeah. the outcome uh, in terms of civilian suffering is awful. So Everything we've talked about today, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, the Saudis, seems to revolve around Iran. Often, uh, it seems like so much of the U.S. foreign policy revolves around Iran. Like, How much of a malign actor do you think the Iranians are 
in all of these places. Do we need to be tougher on them? Uh, because I feel like sometimes we look at the Iran deal and view that as a success. And maybe are we a little too sanguine about some of the other things they do that destabilize the region or support terrorism? What's your take? I don't think we're too sanguine. I, mean, I think there's a peculiar U.S. Uh, tendency of, of building up our enemies into giants. I mean, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Osama bin Laden, whether it's now uh, Iran, they become sort of uh, these mammoths that we're confronting. I think we have to be clear about, yes, Iran is doing a lot of things that are, again, uh, inimical to our interests, but they're not the 800-pound gorilla. I think the main issue with Iran right. is not so much, you know, should we, should we not confront it? Which activities are they engaged in uh, that are uh, hostile to, to the U.S. and to our allies? It's how we do it. And this, again, this is a critique of Democratic and Republican administrations going back uh, since the Iranian revolution, I think what we're seeing now is we tend to confront Iran on the terrain that is most favorable to them. What are the Iranians good at? They're good at exploiting chaos, exploiting war, exploiting instability because in those situations, two things, three things happen. Number one, there always is a party that is going to rely on Iran for help because they're going to look to anyone. And if we are on the other side, then they're going to jump to Iran, number one. Number two, it allows Iran to play the long game. You know, countries in the region, actors in the region know that we're, we're kind of transient passengers. We come in, we'll leave the region, we'll come back, we'll leave again. Iran is there to stay. And that leads to the third point. Iran just knows the region better than we do. So when we play on that, you know, let's escalate in, 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 in Yemen to confront them, or now the Saudis, let's escalate in Lebanon, or let's escalate in Iraq. In each case, we're actually playing to Iran's strength. The fact is, I think this is, you know, people think, oh, uh, the nuclear deal has given more money to Iran. That's why they're stronger in the region. I say that that really is BS. They, first of all, there's no indication that Iran has increased its malign activities because of the deal. The only correlation I think that historically has proven to be absolutely predictive, is where there's chaos and instability in a vacuum, there's greater Iranian influence. It has nothing to do with how much money they have, nothing to do with sanctions or not sanctions. Sanctions could be very high, Iranian Milan activity could be very high, and vice versa. But just a few data points. The invasion of Iraq, which gets rid of Saddam Hussein, which creates chaos and instability in, in Iraq, that opens the door for Iranian influence. That's the correlation. Yemen, we were just talking about it. Sure, there's, there's some relationship between the Houthis and Iran, but it really was not that great. It was a rather, you know, it was an episodic alliance. They don't really, they don't have much in common. The Houthis are very, feel very strongly Arab and tribal. So what do they have to do with the Persian Iranians? But there's a war. There's, uh, Saudi Arabia is more or less indiscriminately bombing uh, some civilian areas. The Houthis turn even more to Iran than they did before. And Iran is only too happy to oblige. So that's Example number two, Syria. Now, this is my, you know, we could have a whole discussion about Syria, but the fact is Iran was present in Syria prior to the, uh, to the war, the civil war. When the civil war explodes and, and, and it becomes a much more violent situation, the regime turns to Iran because it's the only one it could turn to other than Russia and Hezbollah for help and succor, and that's, that's what it does. And you can make the same case in Lebanon. It's instability and chaos and war in, in Lebanon that led to the creation of Hezbollah, which... Iran uh, basically uh, promoted. So in all these cases, it's not Iran's strength that allows it to exercise influence in the region. It's the weakness of its opponents, and it's the chaos in the region. And if we don't address that, 
if, we're, if we say, oh, we're going to give more weapons to Saudi Arabia and we're going to confront Iran in, in Yemen more and we're going to escalate in Iraq or in Lebanon, we could do that. I guarantee you that 10 years from now we're going to look back and say, what the hell did we do? Iran is stronger, the region is weaker, and our allies are more adrift. If we don't learn that lesson, then we really don't understand anything about the region. We love to authorize and resource the military responses. We don't do so well with the political issues, the governance problems, the infrastructure Which, challenges. Which, by the way, that, uh, I mean, so where is Iran weakest? Iran doesn't have anything to offer when it comes to economic reconstruction on a large scale. It could do some in Lebanon, but it's not going to rebuild a devastated Yemen. It doesn't have th- – that's not what it has to offer. That's what we and our allies could offer, economic reconstruction, diplomatic muscle, trying to bring parties together. But – Unfortunately, as you say, those are muscles that we often don't like to exercise, and we exercise those that Iran is uh, sometimes uh, more comfortable uh, dealing with. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. I want to pivot to ISIS because this is a cheery episode. Uh, you are, in addition to being a Middle Eastern expert, uh, an ISIS expert. You led a lot of these efforts at the White House. How do you think the fight against ISIS is going? We, we see them losing territory in Iraq and Syria, but obviously they're still able to inspire attacks in a lot of places around the world. Syria is largely ungoverned. You're seeing Islamic extremist groups becoming more prevalent in parts of Africa and have been in other parts of Africa for a long time. Like, What's your sort of sense of 
a snapshot of the strength of ISIS today as compared to two years ago in the, in the broader sweep of extremist groups that are out there that should worry us. So what's unique about ISIS, uh, which we diagnosed pretty early on, was that it's not just one. It's four organizations roll into one. It's a quasi-state. It conquers territory. It had ter- this quasi or so-called caliphate in Iraq and Syria and some territory in Libya. So it's, it has the, the attributes of a state uh, or in, in being. It's a insurgency, right? It organizes people to take over territory. It didn't simply control it. It took, it, it took over. It's a terrorist organization that we know well. And it's also an organization that inspires terrorism by others who may be very, very loosely related to it. It's all those four. The one that we've defeated or on the verge of defeating, and that was always the one that I felt we had the best chance of defeating, simply because that's a case when ISIS chose our terrain and, and, and played to our strength, which is just the military confrontation with you know, an overwhelmingly superior force. That one is on. So the territorial, the hold on territory and the, the existence of the caliphate, that's more or less in the rearview mirror. I'm sure that it's going to take a few more weeks or months. But that was never much in doubt. Once the U.S. and its allies decided they were going to dedicate themselves to destroying the caliphate, the caliphate was going to be destroyed. That still leaves three dimensions. The insurgency, which I suspect we're going to see more of after a while because you know they'll regroup and they're going to try to attack those portions of the countries in Iraq and Syria that they once held that they no longer hold. It certainly is not going to do much to dent the terrorism and in some ways one could think that they could devote more resources more of their dwindling resources to, as a share of those dwindling resources to terrorism because they don't have, they don't need to manage territory anymore. And certainly the inspiration side is going to remain as well. So I think we've basically succeeded in doing away with one of the four dimensions, but it's a, it's a four-legged stool and we still have to address the other three. And the other three are much harder to address because it's not just a military confrontation. It's a political one. It's one that has to do with getting to those conditions on the ground that allowed ISIS to appear in the first place. And again, let's be honest, we and our allies are not as good at that. You know, we didn't succeed in Iraq after uh, al-Qaeda disappeared. Obviously, uh, ISIS emerged from, from its ashes. So that's where we have to focus is on issues of reconstruction, inclusive government, uh, in some cases, greater decentralization to allow communities to, to govern themselves better. All that has to be taken into account. And then, of course, as a whole counter ISIS on the ideological field to ensure that communities in Europe or in the US or in in the Middle East are not inspired by ISIS and there's a policing work to go after their terrorist dimension. So we've done an important job, but uh, I think we have to be careful not to celebrate too soon because there's much, much else that that, that exists. The second point or the other point I'd make is, you know, during the fight against ISIS, there are only a handful of countries for whom that struggle was the preeminent one. That certainly was the case of the U.S. The U.S. told all our allies in the region and abroad, number one priority is to defeat ISIS. Forget about everything else. Others may have said they agreed. They may have you know, uh, rhetorically complied, but their minds were on other things. You know, For Turkey, it was how do you battle the Kurds? For Saudi Arabia, it was how do you battle Iran? For different constituencies in Iraq, it was who's going to get the bigger share of the pie. So in all these cases, we may have told people the priority is ISIS. They were pretending or, or sort of uh, placating us, mollifying us, and waiting for the day where they could resume the more existential struggle for them. And I think that's what we're going to also see. It's what we're seeing now. I mean, see what happened in Iraq in the fight between Kurds 
and Arabs. Let's see, let's see what's happening between Turkey and Syria. Look at what's happening again between Saudi Arabia and Iran. All of those conflicts, all of those struggles, which for the regional players in some ways are far more important than ISIS, which you know they probably suspected would be defeated at some point. Uh, so this, they, they and in the case of the Iraqis, in particular, and the Syrians, they did devote, and I mean the, the Kurds in Syria and, and some some of the Arab groups, they did fight very hard against ISIS, and they lost far more men and women than than we did. But still, in the back of their minds, they're thinking about the day after. The day after is here; it's upon us. And now is a time when all those conflicts are, gonna, are going to reemerge as the primary ones, and that's. Hard for the U.S. because the U.S. is going to have to play that diplomatic role, which to which it's not. This administration doesn't seem to be accustomed to try to figure out how do you, if not resolve, manage the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, between Turkey and the Kurds, between Baghdad and the Kurdish regions. All of those are going to have to be managed. How do you end the Syrian civil war? Because if you don't, then people are not going to be caring about what I was talking about earlier, which needs to be the focus of efforts, which is reconstruction, reconciliation, inclusive governments, decentralization. And if the focus is going to be on those battles that were sort of put on the back burner, but the mind was never very far from it, then it's going to be a distraction from those priorities. Right. I want to ask you a question about an issue that I've struggled with both inside and outside of the government, which is discussion of civilian casualties. When I interviewed former CIA Deputy Director Michael Morrell recently, I asked him about drones and civilian casualties, and and his answer was one I heard many times when I was in government, and one that frankly I was I am predisposed to believe, which is that drones are are the most precise counterterrorism tool we have. That strikes can be taken with near zero civilian casualties, and that limiting civilian casualties generally in all of these coalition campaigns is is critical and of the utmost most importance, and is something that Obama certainly prioritized. And you know, hopefully, you would think the United States would as well. But if you look at the New York Times Magazine this week, yeah. there is a long piece about these horrific civilian casualties in Iraq, and, and the numbers are briefly: the Times visited 150 U.S. airstrike sites in Iraq, and they found a civilian death rate that was 31 times higher than what was reported by the U.S. coalition. How do we square the circle there? You know, what, what do you think is the truth? How can these air campaigns be precise? but we read numbers like 31 times higher. Like what is acceptable collateral damage and what's the reality on the ground, do you think? So I, I actually read that piece as I was driving here and it's, it's heart-wrenching and it's, it's a remarkable piece. I mean, I can't comment on its accuracy, although um, you know, it does seem to be extremely well, well documented. This is a really tough question and I got to say, you know, this is one of those cases where now being back at the International Crisis Group where I spent a long time of my life before coming back into government and now, now I'm there, you know, you do have different perspectives and I, you know, I have to reflect upon what I was thinking when I was in government and did I do enough on issues that I care about deeply like this one. And, you know, like you, I, I hear what our military say. I hear what people say. This is the most you know, precise uh, campaign. It's problematic and, and problematic is too, too soft a word. I mean, I think it is – it seems pretty clear that, that there's something there that needs to be investigated. I mean, if, if this New York Times story is even – partially correct. And I, again, I have no reason to doubt it. That's a big stain on, on our campaign. And I think we, we, we have to be honest enough to look at it. I wish that we had done more of it at the time. And there was a real effort. And people at State and the White House and elsewhere, I think, as you know, tried to be more transparent, tried to, to push for investigations when there were claims that be, were being made by non-governmental organizations. 
Did we do enough? Probably not. I mean, again, just reading the story suggests that we didn't do enough, and that's that's human, right? I mean, if you're working in the in the Pentagon, do you, you know, you there's a there's an instinct to try to to protect uh, and probably believe um, that these are the most precise targeted uh, strikes ever. But there are, we know there are civilian casualties, and it seems that there are far more than 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 probably we uh, we acknowledged. I mean, one lesson, again, is just far more transparency. But I also think we need to think about how we wage this war on terror and what, you know, what do drones do? On the one hand, there's, there's all the pluses that you mentioned. You know, maybe we could be much more, more precise. We could be much more um, targeted. We can't be that targeted as it, as it appears. And the problem with drone strikes is that there's a – it sort of dehumanizes the war because, you know, we don't there's – no, there's no cost on our side. So obviously the – what sometimes acts on a restraint on, on war-making machines, which is that – on wars, is that, you know, there are casualties on both sides. Here it's a case where, you know, we, we wage a war on terror remarkably well, – and I dislike that term war on terror, so I shouldn't use it. But we have been uh, fighting against ISIS. We've had great success against ISIS at very, very low cost in terms of U.S. casualties. But does that make us less sensitive to the, to the casualties, the civilian casualties on the ground? I think it's something that, that at least – you know, we have to ask ourselves, and, and warfare is going to move more and more in that direction. I mean, th- th- with technology advancing, we're going to see uh, war technologies that are going to be uh, much more, uh, uh, much that are going to require much less of a human uh, risk and human risk taking. But that poses deep ethical questions. And again, you know, I read this piece in the New York Times Magazine. I've engaged with human rights organizations throughout my time at the when I was at the NSC. I don't go back to to those who are investigating these cases. They always say they were investigating them, but you know, uh, we do, we do have to ask the question. I don't have a good answer. I just think it's something that we we need to think about. And there, it is again. I'm not whitewashing the Obama administration. I think we have to be as scrupulously honest and strict and tough in looking back at what we did as we would be with any administration. But there is something about the Trump administration when we hear the president say that he's giving much more leeway to his commanders on the ground and that, you know, there were too many shackles in the Obama administration. Well, if those shackles led to the kind of civilian casualties that, were, that you just mentioned, imagine what removing them is going to do. And it's not, you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, people tell me, well, the rules of engagement haven't really changed. Number one, I don't know that that's true. Obviously, I don't know what the rules of engagement are now. But it's a matter of what the overall climate is. As I said, there probably were far more civilian ca- – any civilian casualty is intolerable and there probably were far more than, than I thought was was occurring. But there was a s- climate where people knew that if something went wrong, you'd have Susan Rice, the national security advisor. You'd have the president of the United States who'd say, what the hell went wrong? And you know that's why some people said, oh, there was too much micromanagement. Well, the micromanagement also the, – the good side of micromanagement is that it keeps people on their heels, on their toes. They know – that if something goes wrong, there's going to be a sense of accountability that, you know, we're not going to simply sweep it under the rug. That doesn't seem to be the case today, and I think that's uh, even more dangerous. Again, I don't know what the casualty figures are going to be now, but we've seen since since uh, the, the Trump administration took over, there have been a number of incidents that at least makes one wonder whether the shackles, as they say, have not been removed too much, and we now have on-the-ground commanders who are doing what you know, one doesn't need to blame them. It's really the, the the political guidance and the authority and the sense of accountability that comes from on high. And I'm afraid that we're moving far too far in that direction. 
I always hated that micromanaging complaint. I mean, when you're the president of the United States, you own every success and every failure and give me a fucking break yeah. that he shouldn't be leaning on his Pentagon to implement the policy as he or she sees fit. Well, look, I mean, I really appreciate your candor on that question. And I also really appreciate the fact that your response was to go to a place of, of questioning the ethics and morality of civilian casualties like that, because I think that's the right and the decent response. I, I also wondered, though, if there's not a question of effects, effectiveness, because mm-hmm. you know, Nick Rasmussen, who's the head of NCTC, I heard him an interview with him recently where he talked about how the ISIS recruiting has gone from sort of a religious tone to one of sort of adventurism and and, and like glory. I wonder if civilian casualties like this or sort of a, a sense of avenging innocence like exacerbates the problem creating more recruits with strikes than you could take off the battlefield which is something i've always heard floated as a theory but i've never seen proven but you see a stories like this and and it certainly seems to lend some credence to it i think there's no doubt about it. i'm not happen to be watching now the extraordinary documentary on vietnam which i'm sure you've you've seen and you know there could be an overuse of Vietnam as a comparative comparison to everything that we do, but you know that is a, certainly the case. Where, despite everyone talking about uh, you know winning hearts and minds, the civilian casualties, the the, the degree to which people felt people in South Vietnam felt that uh, the, the the war was not really taking their interest into account, that certainly helped North Vietnamese. I think we saw that in in Iraq during the war, and you know it, it's. I'm going to say something else, which is which might get me in trouble. But you know, we Democrats in general, not to try to be partisan, but you know, we were many of us were critical of the war on terror moniker. You know, that's that was uh, what does what does that mean? There's no war on terror, but to a large extent, and I think you know, we should have a debate about this someday in another show. Why did the Obama administration end up making the war against ISIS, in which I you know I was I, I played a part, such a central component of the administration, right? I mean, that was, you know, the war against ISIS became critical to so much of what we did. Well, you know, do we then end up putting so much of the emphasis on the military component and neglecting other components, but also, as you say, having the effect of killing people, civilians and others, who are then going to harbor this grievance uh, against us and against others for for a very long time. And is that really the way that you're going to rebuild the country? Putting aside the destruction of entire cities, which which occurred, you know, Mosul, Raqqa, etc. So I think there's a, really a deeper reflection. And uh, John Finer, who I don't know if you've had on this show, but former Chief of Staff of Secretary Kerry and I wrote this piece about just an initial, initial thinking about why this fight against terrorists, this war against terrorists, ends up really um, taking over so much, even of an administration. And I say this you know, I, I really believe this. I think this was the administration that was about as reluctant to go in that direction as you could think of. And I think President Obama was about the most clear-eyed person you could imagine in terms of understanding the real threat of terrorism, what was it and what it wasn't, and how people tended to sort of uh, blow it out of all proportion. And yet even this administration ends up sucked in by that priority, which is, you know, we gotta we got to go after the, the terrorists. That's, that's the goal, and we have to kill them. Um, I think there's a Broad reflection, unfortunately, politically, it's almost impossible to have because then you appear to be weak and you're giving in to the terrorists. But as you're saying, it's not a matter of being weak or terrorist, or weak or giving in to them. It's a matter of being effective and sustainable. And if our fight against them is going to be effective and sustainable, I think we have to sometimes question our methods. But it's 
extraordinarily hard to do. You know this as well as anyone. When you're in government and when everyone is looking at the results in 24 hours or 72 hours or in the next week and people don't really have as much of the luxury as they should of thinking, okay, but what's the, the results going to be in a year, two years, three years, five years? Um, but that's uh, that's a challenge I think that any administration has. Again, I, I don't think we're going to find an administration with people at the very top who care about these things, who think about them rationally as much as we did with President Obama and his team. And I think it says a lot that even with that configuration, we end up with such an emphasis defeating ISIS. They're the biggest danger uh, that we face. And again, I think this is, we could have three hours on this and I'd be glad to come back, but, I, but it is something that I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit. I would love to follow up and have that conversation another time because I think there is a politically very challenging conversation yep. to be had about right-sizing the risk in the public consciousness uh, from terrorism and adjusting the resources yep. and mindshare and approach from the U.S. government accordingly because, boy, is it out of whack at times, as anyone who goes through TSA knows. <laughs> I mean, do, do, I'm sure you remember, actually, I don't know if you were still there, when uh, the pr- President Obama once said that fewer Americans had died at the hands of a foreign terrorist than slipping in a bathtub. And that had caused, yeah. you know... Scandal. He's he's uh, minimizing uh-huh. the uh-huh. risk. He's trivializing it. Now, maybe it wasn't the best analogy, but the data is true, and it's not just people sleeping in their bathtub. It's you know dying because of lightning. I mean, you get this. You go down the yeah. list of things right. that Americans die from, and see how many die from at the hands of foreign terrorists, and it's sort of way down that list. And yet, in terms, I mean, forget about you know gunshots and and uh, another discussion we could have. So in terms of of uh, seatbelts, exactly. So. But the resources that we put into this is completely disproportionate to what we would put into other issues that we act, that are actually causing far more damage and death uh, of Americans. Yeah, now, there are good reasons for it. I, I, it's not pure irrationality. It actually that you could right. there's something to it. But I do. I just I remember. I just remember the backlash when it appeared like the administration was downplaying the threat, when it, all it was doing was being absolutely rational and logical. But being logical and rational on an issue like terrorism, not not only does it not pay, it actually could turn out being very counterproductive because you could end up appearing to be wholly disconnected from your constituents. And you know, no president, no administration can afford to do that. So anyway, as I say, this is a long and not necessarily painless discussion, but one I think we have to have. <laughs> I agree. Rob Malley, thank you so much for uh, your service to the administration and all the work you did to uh, – fight ISIS and deal with these challenging issues and for helping us understand what the hell is happening in Lebanon and talking through some of these really tough, morally challenging questions about our approach to terrorism. I I truly appreciate it. And I would love to have you back sometime soon and and, uh, follow up on this because I think it's an important conversation. Thanks. uh, Appreciate being on. Thanks again for listening to Pod Save the World. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help people discover the show. And for more information, photos, additional updates, check out the Pod Save the World Facebook page. Thanks again, guys. See you next week.